With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, all right, all right, guys. Welcome back to Informed Consent. We have another awesome interview for you guys today with Jill Williams, all about agency survival. Um, however, it turned out to be more of uh, thriving than uh, surviving in your agency. She has a plethora of wonderful information uh, and tips and ideas to take your career to the next level within an agency. But before we jump into it, head over to audibletrial.com slash informed consent to get a free audiobook and a free month of Audible. Audible is an amazing tool um, to really create a library within your car because I know a lot of you are driving around um, to and from clients. It's a great way to separate your clients um, and uh, help you kind of unwind between them. Currently, I am reading Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, uh, and it's a great read. It's definitely informing some of my therapy I'm doing lately. Anyways, that is enough from me. On to Miss Jill Williams. back to Informed Consent. I'm Gabriel. And I'm Heather. And today we have a very special interview with Jill Williams on agency survival skills. Jill is a LCSW currently in private practice and does supervision for licensure. Um, She also periodically works in the ER uh, as a social worker. And you'll have to tell us a little bit more about that too, Jill. Um, And she has been a foster parent uh, and has fostered over 80 children. Yep. So welcome, Jill. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, I'm excited. So did we leave anything? Actually, let's tell us a little bit more about your um, position in the ER, because I'm kind of interested in Mm -hmm. hearing about that. Yeah, I do psychiatric intake in the emergency room, um, which means a variety of things. I do everything from the triage position, which is meeting folks when they first come in the door, you know, with law enforcement or out of the ambulance or heaven forbid they have driven themselves there on some occasions. Um, and then I also do evaluations like the full psychiatric Mm -hmm. evaluations, help the emergency room physicians make disposition decisions of whether folks can be discharged or need inpatient treatment. And I do some telepsychiatry stuff, um, with the partner hospitals that we have around the Western part of North Carolina. So my role predominantly is welcome to the hospital. What's happening and what can we do to help you and facilitating either linking them to other inpatient facilities or back into the community. Gotcha. Your position is like um, the position that my wife and I met and the position that she currently has now. So it's really interesting how they, in North Carolina, they roll all that into one, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably more helpful for everyone in the long run. Streamlines things. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so today we're talking about agency survival skills. So you are a, um, clinical supervisor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I provide clinical supervision for LCSWAs, which is what they're called in North Carolina. Okay. And you worked in community mental health for about five years, you said? Yes, I did um, work for about five years at an agency and also did a year-long internship previous to that. And I had a couple of different jobs. I was an intensive in-home lead clinician, which I'm not sure what that looks like in other states. But here in North Carolina, it's basically would be me and a team of two qualified mental health professionals um, working with families in the communities, at school, lots of child and family team meetings, court-involved cases, that kind of stuff. My caseload was primarily preschoolers, um, kids ages three through six, and my area of expertise is PTSD, you know, trauma, survival, anxiety type stuff. So all of my kids were like foster kids or kinship placement or parents had been adjudicated abusive or neglectful. So lots of sexual abuse, um, physical abuse, et cetera. So I did that for several years. I also worked with adults doing, having a caseload of about a hundred adults doing primarily group therapy, because that's the model that we've moved to in our state for folks with Medicaid or no insurance. Oh, really? Yeah. So lots of individual therapy, but lots of groups, um, huge caseloads. And I also did multidisciplinary evaluations, which is when someone petitions the court for another person to have a guardian, like for adults with developmental disabilities or cognitive impairments or like dementia, things like that. So I worked with a team with a psychologist and psychiatrist doing multidisciplinary evaluations as well. Very cool. That's all. That's a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, so tell so it seems like you have found um, a niche for yourself in um, like helping your supervisees kind of survive and thrive within their agencies. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in that position? Yeah, I actually loved working at a community mental health agency. I was one of those rare birds that <laughs> I thrive in the chaos and the craziness and just the unexpected. And I absolutely love it. I love that client population, folks that really have severe persistent mental illness or that have really extensive trauma histories. Those are the people that I really love to work with and feel that you can make such a huge difference in their lives. And as a result of that, I kind of came into my, my job at the agency, um, creating a position for myself. I had worked at this agency for a year doing an internship and um, privately hired someone to do clinical supervision for me when I was an LCSWA. And I was also working at the inpatient hospital doing stuff in addition to all my foster kids stuff. And they, the agency I decided I wanted to work for didn't have a job opening. So I basically proposed like, let's find something for me to do. I know there's something you guys want to do that you haven't done yet. What is it? And they said, well, we would like to have a young child program intensive in-home team. We want an intensive in-home team that works specifically with kids under age six. And we have no idea who would do that because nobody does that. And I was like, oh, well then I'll do that. And so I decided that would be my new area of expertise. And I took as many trainings as I could and consulted with as many therapists that worked in private practice with young children as I could and just kind of made a niche for myself. And then I decided that was a little bit too hard for me. And so I wanted something a little bit easier. So then I transitioned to working with adults 
And then I started taking on some clinical supervisees through the agency where I was doing supervision for folks that worked like in the outpatient um, setting or also did intensive in-home. And what I found is that everybody in community mental health for the most part has the exact same struggles, which is the caseloads are huge. Everything is a crisis, <laughs> terribly underpaid and just generally overwhelmed by how intense everything is. That's a great summary of the experience of so, yeah. community mental health. <laughs> yes, it's like you're drowning, and then somebody's like, hold this baby while you're already right. drowning. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Like, And so what I found out is that, for the most part, the people that are working at community mental health agencies are completely awesome. Like some of the best friends that I've made and some of the best clinicians that are around are folks that came up through community mental health agencies. And typically the people that are clinical supervisors there, even move up into management, they're also good people that are there because they want to be there. And so I found that there was this weird disconnect between what everybody's values system is and then what was actually happening. And it was just this really interesting in-between where some people excelled and did really, really well, and other, people's just, other people just floundered. And so I kind of saw it as an opportunity to be one of the people that, that could thrive in that environment and then advocate for myself and what my needs were. And then once I got really good at that, I started kind of helping other people recognize what their strengths were and how they could advocate for themselves. So I did not intend to like become this person that was really into community mental health. That was not my intention whatsoever, but that's just, that's kind of how I, how it worked out and what I found myself doing. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, um, the disconnect in, in values that you, um, we're seeing? Yeah. So I um, am a licensed clinical social worker. So obviously I fall under the NASW code of ethics. And we talk a lot about the importance of interpersonal relationships and the value of every individual person and providing client centered care and basically (laughs) being superheroes is pretty much what it feels like sometimes. Mm -hmm. And when you're in an agency that has a really, really tight budget that is bound by the limitations of what we're able to do with what we're given, it, it starts to feel like you are treading water, you're not providing the best in client care, everybody's really frustrated and frazzled. Um, it is a no-brainer that an individual clinician with 100 clients <laughs> is not going to be able to provide the best client care. Like, that's just a no-brainer. It's just not going to happen. Um, I noticed that the expectations for productivity just keep getting higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. You know, it went from you have to see eight families a week for intensive in-home and have eight sessions to now you have to do nine a week to now you have to do 10 a week. And it reaches a point that you're just kind of like just running from place to place to place without any real solid treatment plan or real solid interventions planned because you're just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And the disconnect with just general client care, as well as valuing the employees. You know, I felt like we, as, as social workers have all these values. Why don't they apply to each other? Why don't they apply to the people we're employing? and our coworkers and the people that we expect to show up to work every day. It just is really a disconnect for me. So how did you get, um, I guess the agency that you worked for and even, um, your coworkers to 
not only see that um, that disconnect, because I think on some level everyone knows that there is a disconnect, but at, at the same time, no one wants to admit it because if they admit it, they know that they're not providing the appropriate level of services that they should be. So what was that conversation like with some of your coworkers or even like your managers? It was a ton of conversations. It was a ton of conversations. I think the first part of it was fully recognizing that I have value as a person and as a social worker. And I think that we are trained as social workers to be like, we're the last one in line. You know, everybody comes before us. We put everybody else's needs before ours. And it is actually feels kind of selfish and uncomfortable to be like, Hey, you know what? I'm actually kind of a badass social worker and right. I'm what I do and I'm worthy of being here. I have a master's degree. I have X number of years experience before I entered the field. Like I'm a worthy person and I deserve to be treated really well. Um, in addition to that, my clients deserve the best treatment. I will whip out the code of ethics anytime necessary to remind people of what we're expected to do for our clients. And I think that the hires up don't always share that same ethical standard simply because they may have a master's in business administration or they may be looking at the bottom line of what the profit margins are. And so it's our job as the people with the feet on the ground and the ones that are the face of the agency to really constantly pretty, you know, kindly, but pretty forcefully remind them like, Hey, this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. This is what my code of ethics says. And I'm, I'm not able to do anything outside of what my code of ethics says. And so one of the first steps for me, just in advocating for myself and for my clients um, was looking at, was looking at the reality of what the agency is bringing in, you know, actually knowing how much we're being reimbursed for the services that we're providing, talking money. And that is something very uncomfortable for social workers. We don't like to talk money. Um, We are very comfortable working within a culture of poverty. For some of us, that's what we came up in. That's what we're comfortable with. And so when people start talking money, we immediately like cringe a little bit. So one thing that I did was talk with the person who did all of our authorization stuff. Most, most larger agencies are going to have an auth specialist or something that's named that that's your liaison um, with your managed care entity or your local management entity, whatever it is. And they can give you a rundown of like, Hey, this is how much Medicaid pays for a 90834 code, you know, you know, 35 to 40 minute session, something like that. This is how much we get paid for intensive in home. And I was able to sit down and really look at all of the billing that I had done over a six month period and be like, holy crap, I've made this agency so much money. And you've gotten a tiny portion of that. I have seen a teeny tiny portion of that. And then it was exacerbated for me because I was getting so many court involved cases and I had kind of this unique, um, unique double whammy of all of my caseload was DSS involved and all of my caseload were children under five who really couldn't clearly say what had happened. So they mm-hmm. wanted me to come and be like this, you know, interpreter basically for child mental health. And I was spending hours and hours and hours preparing for court cases and doing testimony with literally zero training from any legal professional whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
and I couldn't even charge for it. So they were basically like, yeah, you can go sit in a courtroom for eight hours and we'll consider that two billable hours for you. And I was like, like, how is this a thing that's happening? Um, so for me, I really looked at what I was bringing into the agency, um, how much money I was making them and how my extra efforts of doing the court stuff, going to the child and family team meetings, being a good team player in the community, position my agency to be in good standing with the local management entity, you know, Medicaid, DSS, the schools, all of these different things. And so part of it is really recognizing what you bring to the table. Because your inner, what you brought to them really was a great return on investment. You did all this work on yourself to create this expertise and they reaped a great return on that investment that you made. And so understanding what value you have there and reminding them of that. Yep. That is exactly what it is. And I go into meetings with numbers. So whenever it was time, you know, whenever it was time to do our annual review and I asked for, I'm a person that just asks for raises randomly once in a while, just because I just feel like, I mean, the worst they're going to say is no, they're not going to fire you. Um, so I would just kind of ask for raises once in a while. And we had a, we had a salary freeze for a few years at our agency because North Carolina is rough. It is, it is a rough state to be in the mental health field. It truthfully is just because of political things and funding mm. claims. And it's really hard for us. And I get that. And our agencies have had to backpedal on a lot of benefits and it's, it's just rough. Um, but every year that did not fail, I would always ask for a raise And a lot of times they would say no. And then I would have to say, okay, well, here are my numbers. Here's what I brought in last year. Here's how many hours I worked. This is basically what my hourly rate is. I have a master's degree. Who do you plan to find to replace me? This is how much it costs to onboard me. Um, These are all the things that I've done and all the extra ways that I've kind of stepped up and done things outside of what you guys are asking. And typically what would happen is they would kick me a little bit extra money and I would be like, okay, so that's good. But how about I get some extra paid time off? How about you let me take Fridays off? How about you um, work in a bonus structure where if I work extra, I get paid extra. And so by the time that I left the agency, I was making more than most of our clinical supervisors and like the program supervisors. And I was only working three and a half days a week. And I had actually set it up to where I worked my three and a half days a week. I hit my productivity expectations. If I exceeded that, I actually got paid an additional hourly bonus rate on top of that. And I felt really, really good about it. I felt that, you know, they were, had met all of the things to keep me around and make me feel good. You really are the social work superhero. You, you do the hard work, you do amazing work and you get paid for it. Yes, yeah, it, it really felt pretty good. It honestly felt pretty decent. And the the one agency that I worked with for a long time, a lot of people left there feeling, you know, just run down and beaten up and like they'd had such a terrible time. It just been put through the ringer. And I think that one thing that helped me not feel that way is having realistic expectations of what this is like. Like you are in community mental health. It is going to be rough. There are going to be long hours. You are going to call 911. The cops are going to come. They are going to find a handgun in somebody's car. (laughs) You are going to go to court. You are going to have a parent follow you around the community and have to tell your family, like, this is our safety plan. Like you have to be very realistic about what community mental health is. 
And I feel like if you can, if you can have a realistic understanding of what you're getting yourself into, it makes it a little bit easier to manage the stress because you can be prepared for it a little bit better. That, that is huge to me. Um, I also think one thing that helped me survive and really thrive is that I was always willing to kind of try something new and try something different. So when I was doing intensive in home with little kids and our agency swallowed an entire adult outpatient service provider, um, the, the clinical director came to me and said, Hey, we have this one person coming in. Um, you know, the adult clinicians are doing intakes, but this one person has, is on the sex offender registry. He has a history of really trying to get clinicians riled up. And I feel like, you know, this, this is something that you could be helpful with to do this one person's intake so we can figure out where to put them. And I was like, all right, that sounds terrible. I'll do it. <laughs> that Nobody else really wanted to do it. And it was going to be three hours out of my week. And they were going to pay. And I, of course, was like, that sounds terrible. I definitely would like to get, you know, an extra hour of productivity out of that because I know it's going to be rough. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. We'll do that. And so I did the intake um, and it was terrible as expected. But the fact is I was willing to kind of go out on a limb and do it. And so if you can figure out little ways to do extra things within your agency that you, that you are not expected to do, I guess would be the right word, like things that aren't your baseline expectations, but maybe is something a little bit extra, you can actually make yourself an invaluable part of the agency so that they know that they can call on you when they need something. That is a double-edged sword, and I can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about boundaries, um, but when you're first starting out, when you're getting there, your foot's in the door at the very beginning, really try to branch out and make connections with as many different departments as possible and as many different service lines as possible. That way you get to be seen as a person that's like a go-to, you know, you're there every day on time, you're doing what you need to do, your notes are in on time, like you really have to be on it at the very beginning so that you create a reputation for yourself for always delivering. And then it, it affords you the opportunities later to really advocate for, for yourself and have a strong stance to do that. You, it just, it clicked. Uh, and I refrained from shouting out, but you've, you sort of positioned yourself as that entrepreneur, um, mm -hmm. as that, um, that person, and maybe not so much that wasn't your role, but you took parts of what it is like to have that role as an entrepreneur. And you made that sort of your side job which eventually opened you up to doing whatever you needed to do or, and, and get what you deserved as far as, you know, the, the benefits and, and the pay and, and all of that other stuff. But you also did the, you like front loaded all that work for, yes. I don't know how many years before all of that kind of paid off. And I think um, your story like mimics the stuff, at least my early days of starting the business that I own. It's like, you have to do all this work way, way, way at a time with no one realizing what you're doing or even caring before anyone finally notices you and gives you what you're, um, I guess what you've put in already. Yes, that is absolutely accurate. I, it is front loading and doing a ton of work at the onset. And to be totally honest, I, I came up in a world. Um, I grew up in the Midwest where work ethic is like, work ethic is more important than the Bible and the Bible's important in the Midwest, but 
work ethic is it. And so when you're fresh out of school and you don't have a ton of experience, it's unrealistic to expect that you're going to walk into an agency and people are just going to throw money at you and praise you for a million things under the sun. Like you kind of got to pay your dues. You have to show up every day and do what you need to do and put yourself out there. Um, and, and it's really an interesting it's really an interesting phenomenon that I've seen is people are like, well, I do have a master's degree. Like I went to school for this many years and I did this, that, and the other, and everybody owes me these things. <laughs> and the reality is like, no, no, they don't. Like nobody owes you anything. Like you're going to have to show up and really like make a name for yourself. It's just like any other industry in the entire world. Um, you know, like you don't, you don't roll up one day like, oh, I'm a tattoo artist. No, you pay your dues, you go through the apprenticeships, you do what you need to do. And I feel like it's the same thing with being a therapist and just with the social work field in general, you have to show up and work hard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you work so hard in your internship that the agency made a place for you. They worked with you to create a place for you because they saw value in you. And even as an intern, you have an opportunity to really make a name for yourself. And I've seen that so often with fantastic interns. We were just talking about a fantastic intern um, with a counselor who has an office right across the the courtyard from Mm -hmm. us and just how amazing she's going to be. And you really, it's, you start immediately when you're, when you step in the door. Yeah, you absolutely do. We had a ton of interns that came through our agency that within two months, we were like, okay, how can we get them to work for us? Like it was pretty evident very early on that they were going to be a great fit. Um, A lot of the agencies will pull from their interns before they even hire externally. So if you can show up and like rock it out as an intern, you're almost guaranteed to have a job. It may not be the highest paying job in the field, but you can almost guarantee yourself a job just by showing up every day and doing what you need to do. And I, I did one internship with an agency. It was absolutely so much fun. Um, it was like a, an agency that does music festivals, but they have all these like school-based and after-school programs for music. And um, within a month or two of being there, they were like, um, yeah, this is awesome. How about you just start and completely run your own after-school program at one of these community centers? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And so I just made it up and did it. And then they were like, hey, uh, how about you rewrite our policy and procedure manual for the whole place? And I was like, okay, whatever, I'll figure it out. Um, And so I asked people and got advice and just did it. And so as a result of that, that was an amazing reference for me that I could have the president of this nonprofit write a letter on my behalf to say like, yeah, she came in and completely started this from scratch and ran a program. And here's the, you know, news release of where they had their opening and all these different things. And yeah, even as an intern, you can absolutely, you can absolutely make your mark. And actually being an intern is a great place to figure out what the agency needs by really looking and listening and paying attention to what's going on around you. Um, I think that a lot of us show up as social workers with this idea of what we want something to be in our mind, because that's what we do. We're problem solvers. We want to come in and solve problems. But I really think you have to go back to your education and social work of listening to what the problems are before you have all the solutions for the problems. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like you don't show up and put a new roof on somebody's house when they really say that they need a new stove. You know what I mean? That's kind of like a basic story from social work world. Um, We can't tell agencies what we need. We have to really listen to what it is that they need and then fill in the gaps. I think that's a really important part. So there's, 
a number of things that I'm thinking of that I want to touch on. <clears throat> the first is just real quick anecdote for anyone that's still in there in that master's program is, um, and I know this is something that you and I have talked about at length is there is no arrival. There's no, like I have my degree. I have this great piece of paper. Um, so I've arrived and I'm ready to go. It's like my speaking from personal experience, um, the master's program was easy and college was easy. Things didn't get hard until I had those things and until you have that knowledge to, or that understanding to work even harder. So it's not, there's no arrival. There's, okay, now you've gotten to this point and now the real work actually begins because um, you just have this, this piece of paper that says that you're a-okay to go do these things when really speaking from our program that we went through, and I'm sure this goes for probably any master's program is you don't know any, anything, yeah. you know, maybe like 10% of, of what you think, you know, <laughs> and there's really an infinite of more information that you have yet to glean. Um, so I think that's an important piece for um, everyone to know when they're in their internship or even when they, their first job outside of graduate school is now you need, now comes the real work because all yeah. the other stuff was not fluff, but it was, it was not, it was giving, um, I mean, it was giving you a good theoretical basis, but there's like, like you haven't had a psychotic person chasing you, right. you had a psychotic person chasing you, you know, like I can read every book under the sun, but until there's like a six foot seven psychotic person running at me and screaming in a foreign language, like you can't, that's not something you can learn in school. And I think that, um, humility is a big part of this. Like I've been, you know, between, working in the mental health field in general and being a clinician, I've probably got like maybe 15 or more years experience under my belt, but I still don't know crap. I see mm -hmm. stuff on a daily basis. That's like, Holy cow. I had no idea that this is a thing that existed in the world and I'm still willing to seek consultation. I have a bunch of trusted people that I'll reach out to if I need anything. And I think that is extremely valuable for, for folks to hear that are fresh out of school. You know, I, I feel like there's this, um, push of like, go out and be competent and be confident and do good things. And in reality, you probably are not competent. Even with 15 years in the field, you're probably still not entirely competent. None of us are. Mm -hmm. and dear God, please don't be confident in your abilities because that's when it gets dangerous. Like when mm -hmm. you stop asking for help is when you start to have malpractice lawsuits. <laughs> Absolutely. Things get really yucky. So definitely come into this from a place of humility of like, I'm here to learn. Exactly. We've done as many things as I can. I'm willing to help people out, but I'm also willing to ask for help. I think that's really important too for, you know, the higher ups in an agency to see like, Hey, this person is really using their resources and recognizing where their shortcomings are. That way you can help fill in the gaps for yourself of, you know, what is the new education that I need? What trainings have I missed out on? Who are people that I can shadow? I was huge about first coming into an agency and finding some mentors. Who are the people that I really look up to within this agency that seem to have done a great job and have a career that I, I admire. And I would schedule to eat lunch with them. I would follow them around. I would ask the, to shadow them for the afternoon, um, really try to find ways to insert myself into their lives so that I could see what it is that they were doing that worked really well. And how was all of that viewed by the agency and things like that. Mm -hmm. My personal experience is that 
I was, I feel, again, I feel very fortunate. I was very happy in my agency job. I feel like my coworkers were amazing. For the most part, all of my supervisors were completely awesome. They're just genuinely good people. Um, I would say even all the way up to the state clinical director and our state operations manager at the agency I was at, they were just awesome. They knew me by name, like it, they would come to meetings if I asked. People were really responsive. And a lot of people are genuinely flattered if you look up to them. You know, they're like, well, right. that's awesome. I'm glad that you see these positive things in me. And a lot of people want to take on that role of kind of being a mentor and talking about themselves and their career and how they got to where they are now. So I didn't really get a whole lot of pushback. I think there's a way to do things that's not like annoying little sister type stuff. You know, you don't want to be the annoying little sister that's like, Hey, can I come? Hey, what are you guys playing in here? <laughs> want to actually have a reason and a purpose for being there. So like I, one example is, um, my agency did a training with law enforcement officers for some crisis intervention stuff. And one of the supervisors had, had just casually mentioned at a staff meeting, like, Hey, I have this thing going on next week. So I won't be available on Monday for calls. And immediately I went to her afterwards. I was like, that sounds amazing. Do you mind if I tag along? Like, is there anything that I can do? Um, do you want me to help make copies for you? Whatever it is. And she was like, Oh yeah, if you want to make some copies, that's fine. You're welcome to go. And then they worked it out where I got to meet with her in advance and go over it and then help co-facilitate the training. And then they paid me for it. And it was like, <laughs> all I had to do was ask. Like wow. I literally just had to walk up and say, Hey, this sounds super interesting. What can I do to be helpful? And that was it. And that opened the door for me to be able to do that. Um, which gave me a lot of new insight into how law enforcement in our community interacts with folks with severe persistent mental illness. That's something I never would have known had I not just stepped up and asked. And it was shocking to me that I was the only person that asked out of a staff of like 55 people, nobody mm -hmm. else asked about it. That was weird to so me. So on that note, I'm curious, what are your, what were your relationships like with your coworkers? Well, they were very mixed. I will be honest about that. Um, I had a lot of people that I worked with that were like, man, we know that we can count on Jill. She's always going to show up. She's always going to go above and beyond. Um, and then I had a lot of coworkers that were kind of off put by the fact that I was showing up and I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I have folks now that I'm very close friends with that have now, have now said to me like, wow, you really scared the crap out of me. And I was very intimidated by the fact that you just showed up and did it and kind of didn't give a crap about what, you know, other people's opinions were of what you were doing or um, that you were very straightforward and advocating for yourself. And, and that, that can be kind of intimidating to see in another person. So I had kind of mixed relationships. I have very little tolerance for whining. Like that's just a me personally and my personality thing. I just feel like whining is not helpful. I feel like advocating for yourself is helpful. It's one thing to say, I don't like this, 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 and this. It's another thing to say, hey, I'm not really happy with the way this is going. And here are three possible solutions. Which one can we do? And so one thing that I found is there is a lot of whining that happens in community mental health agencies. It happens in every industry, I'm sure. Right. But a lot of people get this like, woe is me. I'm so downtrodden. I have no power. Um, I, you know, it just feels very helpless. And you can absolutely live with that mindset. Or you can say, 
you know what, actually I can do this. I can go out and do these things and advocate for myself and advocate for my clients. And typically people will listen and people will respond to that. So one thing I can also say is um, relationships with people all over the agency is really, really important. Like, yes, I worked with other clinicians. They were completely awesome. But there were always like these little kind of clicky groups, like the clinicians would get together in their little group um, and not really pay as much attention to the people that are working, filing papers and doing the authorizations and doing the HR stuff and coordinating with the external agencies. And it's really important to remember like it's not just you and a bunch of other clinicians. You have a whole team behind you. The people that work the front desk have like the crappiest job ever. They basically right. yes. their phones and deal with crises. And if you can roll up and offer them a 15 minute bathroom break, like pop in and say, Hey, can I answer phones for 10 or 15 minutes between clients so that you can just go to the bathroom or, you know, text and check on your kids or whatever. So as far as that goes, I had a really, I feel like I had a really good relationship with um, most of the supervisors that were there across the board for the whole time I was there. Great relationship with all the support staff and really overall a pretty good relationship with my coworkers with a few exceptions um, because I, when people whine, I'm like, just why are we doing this? Like, no, if you hate it so much, don't work here. I, I think that that's kind of, mm-hmm. and it does reach a point eventually that your stuff doesn't align with your agency stuff and you can't work there anymore. And I feel like so many decisions to say at an agency you're unhappy with are made out of fear. Um, you know, fear of what's next, fear that you'll not find another job, fear that you'll be homeless and destitute, <laughs> that it, it just got, it, it can get really overwhelming and difficult to make that decision to move on. And I feel like when I also got really bitter about it, like if you're not happy here, then you're not giving your clients your best and you're right. not within the realm of ethical practice right now because you're so miserable that you're just making everybody miserable and your clients can see that your clients see that you're unhappy. They can tell you don't want to be there. They can feel that you are not hundred percent into it and you're not giving your best work. Exactly right. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, I guess, how another clinician um, can see those signs of maybe it's time to move on or maybe my values aren't aligning with the agency? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, my big thing is I am um, huge into integrity, ethics, values. That's like my bottom line is very honest, transparent, integrity type stuff. And my husband and I did actually have to leave um, a place that we were working for many, many years because our values did no longer aligned with the place that we were working. And there were a lot of different signs of that. I think that anytime someone above you asks you to do something that in any way gives you a funny tummy feeling, you can tell that I work with preschoolers because I think <laughs> it's funny tummy. But anytime a supervisor asks you to do something that just feels like it's not the right thing to do, it is your responsibility to push back against that and say, this does not feel good to me. This is why it doesn't feel good. And I'm not going to be able to do that. I will say at the, at the community mental health agency I was at, never once did they ever push me on that. Anytime that I said, no, I don't agree with that. And this is why every single time they had my back and completely supported me. 
if you are, I right now have a clinical supervisee who is at an agency that is not doing that. And it's <laughs> saying, we want you to do all these things that are kind of shady. And um, he actually just put in his notice yesterday. Good for him. A while, Congratulations. Yeah, a while to get to that. But anytime that they're asking you to do things that give you a funny tummy and they're not willing, willing to backpedal on it, that's when you know that ethically they don't line up with what your value system is. Um, if you're at a place where you are hearing a lot of talk that is quite frankly racist or sexist or um, shaming of poor people, like these are things that actually happen in agencies. It is ridiculous and terrible, but it does happen. And that would be a sign that as a social worker, that does not align with your values. You can obviously do your best to try to change their opinion on things and provide some education and resources, but sometimes it, it reaches the point that you have to bail. Um, if you are at an agency where you would really care less about your self-care and about what you're oh, yeah. doing, <laughs> where they consistently harass you for taking sick days or they try to micromanage your vacation days or they try to make you feel bad if you had the flu. Those are places that just don't, you know, don't really care about you as a person. Um, You're a body to bill. <clears throat> I think. What were you going to say? I was going to say, those are kind of the big ones for me, you know, yeah. the ethical quandaries and them. Just, oh, and money. Like if they are so stuck on money and productivity that they are slamming you. Like I had one supervisee that worked for an agency. They were like, well, we want you to run these substance abuse groups and your caseload is going to be between 250 and 300 people for one person. I was like, that is, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Like you are setting yourself up for some serious serious problems. Um, so anytime that money is being valued over client care, that that's a red flag that you might need to bail. So like if all of your clinical supervisions start with, let's talk about productivity, <laughs> that may not be uh, <laughs> a good place to be. Mm -hmm. Yes, I actually did. I have been, um, I'm the person that's like, I'm going to start a blog and then I don't. So I know a lot of other people feel me on that one, but I wrote two blog posts because I got so fired up about eight months ago because some of my supervisees were having these weird issues at their agencies that I actually did a couple of blog posts. And one was like finding the right for you clinical supervisor. And the other was about making the most of your clinical supervision. And that is one of the things that I said is, you know, agency supervision can be awesome if it's done by the right person who is in it for the right reasons. But if your agency supervision starts with, I noticed you were sick two days last week. <laughs> I only saw 27 clients this week. By the way, did you turn in your updated paperwork for your blah, blah, blah? Like that's not, that is not good use of supervision. And it feels yucky. And it's also cheating you as a supervisee. You know, you're new to the field. Like you really need to be getting good clinical supervision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's no board out there in the States that would say, yeah, talking productivity for an hour every week is going to make you a better uh, licensed uh, social worker or counselor. Um, but I know um, that that's... Uh, that is the case for a lot of... Yeah. And I do help my supervisees talk about efficiency, organization, oh, yeah. organization, those kind of things. So there is, there is a place for that. 
But if it is just focused on money and how much you're bringing in, that's just, that's terrible and feels very yucky. And then you get into the whole ethics of for-profit mental health. Like, I can't go down that. <laughs> I can't go down that whole thing, but it is. It starts to feel really yucky. It's yeah. a business. Yeah. Yes. It, it is a business, and I think there is a way to I, – I own another business, and I once had a supervisor tell me – when I kind of approached him with some of the things that you have said, um, his response was, this is a business, and I don't think you know – you don't know how to run a business. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I actually own a business, and uh, <laughs> that is – this would be a, a helpful suggestion for you guys to take up. Um, so, um, man, we could – I we could go on for hours, I think. Um, cause there's so many things that I wanted to ask, uh, and, and interject and, and get your insights on. So we're going to have to do, uh, probably a follow up and then I'm sure <laughs> more things will come up. Um, <laughs> this was awesome. Yes. Yep. So on that note, what, <laughs> what, what else, what, what is, what is an important part of this that you want that we haven't talked about that you want our listeners to know? Well, one of the most important things I think in surviving community mental health does come down to expectations. What is a realistic expectation of, you know, what the work is in general and also what your own personal limitations are? You know, we at the agency agency I was at, we all had to do the ACEs quiz for ourselves, you know, the adverse childhood experiences right. quiz. And that was part of our clinical supervision. And we were allowed to share it or not share it. But it really gave some people insight on these are how my past impacts me. Also knowing what your own limitations are just with your personality. Like I don't do grief work whatsoever. It's not a thing that I do now. It is not a thing that I ever want to do. I cannot, it hits too close to home. I can't do it. Um, knowing what your, when you get tired, if you're a person that flat out cannot get up and get to work at eight o'clock in the morning, then share that information and try to make a schedule that works for you. It's really about knowing what you're capable of doing and how you can fit that into work. I think that that's the, the biggest part of all is recognizing like you are a human being, you have limitations, be very upfront and realistic with what those limitations are. And you probably most likely can get an agency willing to work with you on some of that stuff. If you're super transparent about it and have realistic expectations. That's my biggest thing. Expectations of others and yourself. You have to keep it realistic. That's great advice. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, uh, I think that wraps up really, really, really well. Um, and I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, so we definitely will have to do a follow up because um, there's a million things that are running through my mind. And if you don't feel like blogging and, and you have an idea, feel free to shoot us an email and we'll have you back and then you can just talk about it instead of writing about it. Yeah, I like to talk much better than I like to write. Thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> if if our listeners want to get in touch with you or, or want to know more about you, how can they how can they find you? Um, I have a website. It is www.flourishashville.com and Asheville is spelled A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E. So that's me. And my email is contact at flourishashville.com, which is super easy. Right on. Well, we'll link all of that um, in our show notes. Is there anything else you want to ask or say? Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Thank you're you welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right, guys, we will talk to you again next time. 
Join the conversation every week after the episode over at informedconsentpodcast.com. This is also where you'll find archived episodes and show notes to each episode. Plus, our recommended reading list for clinicians wanting to take their education to a new level. Go there and click join the conversation now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.